0: Uh, Before we start, uh, I wish to thank Arts Council England for sponsoring the whole festival and David and Ann Toombs for sponsoring this particular event. Thomas Lynch is going to read first, and I'll introduce him first, followed by Tony Hoagland. Now, Thomas Lynch is a poet many people meet without knowing it. When he makes your acquaintance, you have nothing to say because you're already dead. For as well as being a leading American poet, short story writer and essayist, he's an undertaker. One of his collections is called Still Life in Milford, referring to Milford, Michigan, where he was the funeral director from 1974. And one of his books of essays is called The Undertaking, Life Studies from the Dismal Trade. Four of his collections have been published in the UK by Cape, Skating with Heather Grace, Grimalkin, Still Life in Milford, and Walking Papers, and you'll find copies of at least two of those, possibly three at the back. Now, by using his daily routine as poetic fodder, Lynch has transformed the mundane task of preparing the dead into a life-affirming event. His lyrical, elegiac poems describe the dead citizens of his hometown, his own family relationships, and scenes and myths from his Irish Catholic upbringing. He keeps an ancestral cottage in County Clare in Ireland. Described in the New York Times as a cross between Garrison Keeler and W.B. Yeats, His poetry dissects the vicissitudes of the human experience with grace and wit. Matthew Sweeney has written that Thomas Lynch looks into the eyes of corpses and sees their lives and their difficult loves that remind him of his own, and he manages to do so with humor and grace, that word grace again. Now today, Thomas Lynch is blessed with a live audience for his work, so would you please show him that you're all very much alive and give him an animated welcome.
1: I've seen that line. Thanks, Neil, for that. And I've seen that line about Garrison Keillor and William Butler Yeats more over here than I get over there, and I think... Who have I offended the most with that? But uh, I didn't make it up. But uh, I'm so pleased to be back in Ledbury after, I think, 19 years. And um, I uh, was uh, told by my assistant uh, that she would come to this reading if I only read poems that I hadn't published before. So I, this is all, these are all new poems. I, I think... Um, Making a fool of yourself in front of all these people is always more exciting than doing it in private, which I do on a regular basis. It's so very good to meet and read with you, Tony Hoagland. Thank you for uh, being here, and uh, I had the good luck yesterday of um, spending some time with Catherine and Jacqueline and Tony in a place called the Prince of Wales where we fell into um, nothing terrible. Uh, (laughs) We were discussing... Um, we were discussing whether poetry is dialogue or monologue. And, of course, poets just make shit up as they go along anyway, so it was either one or the other back and forth. Um, I want to add my thanks to uh, Ann and David Toombs for the great uh, hospitality you've shown me yet again and all the kindnesses and sponsoring this event. It's uh, a great pleasure to be here. I said my first answer to your question about dialogue or monologue was that I thought it was a dialogue, that we keep going back and forth. Tony thinks it's a monologue, yourself talking to yourself. I think that's the way I got it. No, he'll explain it to you on his own. But anyway, it reminded me of a correspondence I've kept up with years now with a man whose name is Michael Heffernan, a wonderful poet, internationally unheard of like the rest of us, and ignored on seven continents, um, but he, um, he and I have kept up uh, a correspondence. I probably wouldn't write poetry unless I had first discovered poems in the making in his office one time and thought, living people do this, because up until that time I thought you had to be, like, horizontal to be doing this, because all that we ever studied at school were dead poets. So um, over time we've both gotten older and crankier and uh, fallen into bad habits of indolence and And uh, uh, so we don't so much talk anymore. The only thing we do is occasionally write poems back and forth. And for a long time, we corresponded on three-by-five cards on which you could fit a sonnet. And at the time, we could mail it for 14 cents. And we thought, this was the Postal Service imitating art, you know. So they went back and forth, and and they found their ways into books. And I'd read you some, except I'm under ban of reading anything that I've published in a book. So this one isn't. It's, they've gotten longer because the poster rates have gone up. <laughs> so uh, a couple of Novembers ago, I got this note from Heffernan one morning. We send them by text or email now, but they're still in verse. So here's what Heffernan had to write to me. What are you doing, Lynch? What's going on? It's night in Arkansas where I am, 5 a.m., November eighth, 2014. And I am actually feeling quite well. One month and 12 days from 72, I'm feeling very well, in fact, I am, to tell the truth itself without a bit of hesitation or exaggeration. I ate a pizza all by myself last night. The cheese alone could kill me, but it won't. As you are fond of saying, doctors kill, so I see mine as little as I can. I walk around, I notice trees and deer that walk around in pastures here in town, set back behind the hoses, little spots with ruins of old Older houses, cellar holes where people gone a hundred years ago put their provisions and the stuff they kept against the days to come and walked around not much unlike the way I do and looked and watched the days go by by them as they will. What is the day like where you are, my friend? So you wake up with, you have to respond, poetry being, as we say, a dialogue. <laughs> This has no title either. I'm up at the Lake Heff, thanks for asking. A gray morning, windless, dewy, cool. It's almost 10 a.m., November 8, 2014, and I am likewise feeling well enough, not yet a month since I turned 66. Yes, yes, I am sufficiently informed to make some plans for what I'd like to do with whatever's left to me of time. Last night I made myself a bowl of soup, Beef barley soup, progresso, in a can with a sleeve of saltine crackers on some of which I spread a little butter. Then read a book by some old leatherneck who fought with my father at Cape Gloucester. The day that you were born in 42, they were both in boot camp near San Diego. By the time you were two, they were changed forever. I'm haunted by those years and what came after so that this morning as I look into the gray maw of air and land and water, north to Sheboygan, west to Toppenabee, they seem like us a little lost at sea. The, um, of course, the other great responsorial habit of poets is to steal what they can from all other poets, as Eliot said we ought. And, um, and so I've been listening to the poets all my life, not so much because I admired the work, but because I thought I could steal something from them for my own purposes. Many of you will remember the marvelous Heaney poem about St. Kevin and the Blackbirds, or the Blackbird, I think, singular, Uh, uh, an epic story of uh, supplication and holiness where St. Kevin stretched his arms out in the small um, stone oratory he occupied and was just going to say perhaps an Our Father or a glory be a rosary, maybe I don't know, but whatever happened, a blackbird landed uh, in the palm of one hand and lay an egg, and he had to for the rest of Lent hold out his arms uh, because he was a, 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 a you know a nature lover. He was a nurturer, so I have taken that story. I did a little more research into Saint Kevin's uh, history and biography, and so this one is called. St. Kevin and the Temptress after Heaney. And it's based on true accounts. <laughs> after that business with the blackbird, Kevin sore shouldered from his mortifications, the lent long arms reach and supplications in service of life's mysteries and flights, lay himself outspread spread eagle in paschal light, Cozy in a copse of alders, cones, and catkins, and slept the sleep of a child of God. Waking to a woman fast astraddle him in ways he'd never e'er experienced, and sensing frenzy in his nether regions, so lovely that it must be mortal sin, he strove against the ginger haired Kathleen, pressing her pudenda against his parts, whilst writhing midst her own deliriums, the palms of her small hands warm to his heart like riding the tide of love's deep river, groaning approval and grateful te deums, a prayer her being made entirely. Whereupon the monk woke to his senses and grabbing the temptress by her attributes in righteous warp spasms of rectitude, tackled her into the lock's chill waters. The better to chasten, he thought, brute nature, mighty as it was, please God, and that was that. Uh, That outstretched arm uh, always reminds me of the um, sign I was born under, which is Libra, which I think involves a scale that can never decide which way to go. I still have trouble with decisions. Uh, Here's a poem called Libra. The one who pulled the trigger with his toe spread eagle on his girlfriend's parents' bed and split his face in halves above his nose so that one eye looked east, the other west. Sometimes that sad boy's bifurcation seems to replicate the math of love and grief, that zero sum of holding on and letting go by which we split the differences with those with whom we occupy the present moment. Sometimes I see that poor corpse as a token of doubts, twin, and double-mindedness, of sure balance and the countervailing guests, the swithering that niggles at righteousness, like Libra's starry arms outstretched in love or supplication or at last surrender to scales forever tipped in a cold sky. I was in um, Venice uh, a few years ago visiting a friend for his birthday. I travel a lot for funerals, and it seems to me that I ought to start traveling for birthdays. So uh, this lifelong friend was turning 75 and I thought I should show up for it. So I did. Uh, we went to Venice cause he had a, a dental appointment in Padua, which is good news. He has teeth to work on. And, um, and I said, I'll spend the day in, in Venice. I, we ended up spending four or five days. And I went into this church, San Cassiano, maybe you've been to it, but the poem is called San Cassiano uh, and it's for Dualco di Dona and his doctor, Francesco Palladini, uh, a boyhood friend who turned into a medical man. St. Cassian of Imola refused all sacrifices to the gods of Rome, pagan as they seemed to him so true to form. The emperor ordered him executed. It was Julian the apostate who gave the teacher over to his students because they bore abundant grudgeries for the rigors of the saints' strict tutelage. What little of his story is still known involves the stake they bound him to, the slow torment of their styly incising him as if his flesh were wax on which to grave the saga of his grisly martyrdom, the 13th of August, 363, which became, wherefore, his official feast. Some centuries after that, they built a church and christened a square for him in Venice, commissioned paintings by Tintoretto, the Crucifixion, the Risen Christ with Saints, the Descent of Jesus into Limbo, postcards of which are offered now for sale to faithful and apostate one and all. I paid the toll and lit a candle there and sent a card that read, Wish You Were Here. (laughs) Women always get that. (laughs) Thank you for that. Um, This is also about my life with my beloved. It's called Accordion, and for the longest time, It didn't seem like I wrote this. And I kept writing to friends saying, did you ever write a poem called Accordion? And uh, it actually finally got to Matthew Sweeney, who I thought probably wrote it. But he didn't remember writing it, and so I've claimed it. It's mine. (laughs) It's called Accordion. It's about my wife and me. We'd been invited to a neighborhood do, a graduation maybe, or a barbecue we were "'underdressed, the missus and me, "'but I had my accordion, "'which is unfailingly a compensation. "'Whatever happened, there was this shoot, "'like the slides we played on in our childhoods. "'It ascended from the center of the neighbor's yard "'into the heavens beyond the sky "'like a spiral staircase without the steps. "'And it came into my brain "'they'd like to hear something "'from the topmost heights of it. "'So I began to climb on all fours "'with the accordion on my back, wheezing out the occasional chord, myself huffing and puffing with the baffling labor of it, my wife's sweet face gaping heavenward, the locals wide-eyed with the spectacle. Everything was shaky at the top, which I accomplished. I know that for sure, though I can't for the life of me remember what number I played them or the applause that would have just as certainly followed. We were fairly winded, the accordion and me, what with the whole performance Um, some of the poets yesterday, we were happy to hear, uh, were reading Brexit poems. And um, and I, as every American, well, in the country formerly known as the United States, <laughs> now known as Trump-landistan, um, <laughs> we all feel like we should write something about what it is that has happened. And so... I couldn't do that, but on the day after the inauguration, I was invited from my isolation up at the lake uh, to attend a march in Traverse City with women of my acquaintance, and uh, I thought, that sounds good, but I took the dog for a walk, and on the walk, I made this poem. It's called Franchise, and I never did make it to Traverse City, and most of those women are no longer my friends. Franchise. So 53% of white women cast what votes they cast for President Trump because Benghazi or deleted emails or else because the lesser of evils. With all, they couldn't fathom how he won and organized a march on Washington with sister marches all across the globe and held their higher ground and boldly strolled the malls and main streets with their indignations, and rallied citizens across the nations to say that women's rights were human rights and equal pay for equal work. I might have wondered why we hadn't marched before, why 40-some percent forgot to vote. But still I thought we're all in this together, so donned my marching boots, dressed for the weather, hoisted up a sign that said, please tread with me, then walked the dog up Temple Road alone. Some women go for men who march with them, still more with those who grab them by the pussy. So I spent a lot of time alone, as you might gather, from yeah. And after years of it, I thought I'd come up with one of those ads they put in the paper soliciting companionship. And though I never placed the ad, I wrote a poem called personal, because that's what we call the ads. Am old and fat and bald and married twice. Don't drink, don't smoke. I piss and moan too much. I fart and snore, but otherwise I'm nice enough. And though I am rich, rich, I want for nothing. Some say I'm generous to a fault, others that I'm too forgiving. Am looking for someone to travel with to Ireland early on next year. I have a small place on the coast of County Clare between Kilkee and Loophead. Check the map. It is lovely, wild, treeless country. Between the ocean and the estuary, great sunsets, cliff walks by the sea, wild flowers, rainbows, rolling meadows. You get the picture. The little bookish festivals are fun. The nights infused with merriment and song. Maybe... You'd rather long talks by the fire, twisting relations with the Brogy neighbors suit yourself. You can plan to sleep alone. I'm only looking for some conversation, someone to share the mealtimes with, the road, the eventual sadness of it all. I'm so tired of talking to myself. I want to hear another voice reply. Maybe ask how my day went. Would I like a sup of decaf, a lump of goat cheese? I don't know, no hard and fast requirements, no romance or bungee jumping, just some ordinary talk, no feigned orgasms, no swooning afterglow, just some chit-chat and commiseration for a month or so. I lift the seat, I wipe it clean, (laughs) I put it down again. I have uh, this house up north. My son named Lines End, he figured I'd die there. I I have options, but he he thought Lines End was the problem. I have a brother-in-law who does logo wear, so we had to put that on the coffee cups and the T-shirts and things. So Lines End, this is just a description of how you get there. Where Temple Road becomes West Temple Road, assign points left. Go straight downhill instead. The way down to the lake ends with a load of boulders dumped behind a rusting fence declaring access closed. Thus all lines end. The county quit its easement by decree years back when Howard Brown took them to court noting the willows and the walnut trees grown massive while the public works ignored their upkeep of the public's right of way. That compound on the left is Howard's place. He Built the barricade against a scheme a neighbor had to build a boat landing for campers who'd populate his back 40. But Howard's side of things won on the day, so half that no man's land devolved to us sumac and scrub pine, some spindly maples, the walnuts and willows all remain. Border enough and bit of privacy between the Browns' domain and all of us fetched up here our acre on the lake with its long view of approaching weather. A clapboard cottage we remodeled some, that's us there on the right. Thanks be, lines end, and all lead home. Genesis 3. In Dante Ferrari's panel of Eve tempted by the serpent, only a filigree leaf frond from a sapling tree tastefully obscures her mons veneris. For the moment she is still ignorant, not yet embarrassed by her nakedness, how God mannish in his heaven fashioned her. Later she'll get blamed for everything. Her blush, her breast, which in this image are those of a 14 or 15-year-old, will become sources of pleasure and its shame. The serpent's head is an old bearded man leering at her all lechery, yes, Yes, it must be hissing as she bends the branch and reaching upwards with her perfect hand takes hold of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. This is the last hour of paradise. The girl and her consort oblivious to good and evil and their ramifications. Their bites of the tree's fruit are not yet taken. The fig leaves are only fig leaves. Their genitalia not yet shameful. The creator still happy with creation. The pendant canvas in which Adam appears ready to give into all temptation has been lost, alas, to the centuries. Nor can we know now how he held her at the end, grateful, glad for the taste of her, her touch and constancy. I think um, I better move along to this one. This is a Christmas poem I Against uh, the notion of um, writer's block, I thought, well, writer's block is better than plumber's block. But once a year, I thought I'd better knock out a poem. So I, I, uh, I decided I'd do it for Christmas and make it a Christmas card and send it out. This was one a couple of years ago. It's called The Twelve Days of Christmas. Some pilgrims claim the carol is a code for true believers and their catechists, to wit, four collie birds, four gospel texts, eight maids a-milking the Beatitudes and pipers piping the eleven left once Judas had betrayed the Lamb of God, that partridge in a pear tree, the holy one and only whose nativity becomes in just a dozen days the starlit eve of three French hens with their epiphanies huddled around the family in the manger, tendering their gold and frankincense and myrrh, the whole tune seems to turn on five gold rings, that Pentateuch, those first books of the Torah, in which ten lords a-leaping stand in for the ten commandments cut in loaves of stone, which Moses broke over his wayward tribesmen, two turtle doves, two testaments old and new, six geese a-laying creations short and weak, the swimming swans, gifts of the Holy Ghost whose fruit becomes withal, nine ladies dancing, twelve drummers drumming, the Apostles' Creed, a dozen doctrines to profess belief in. Still, others say it's only meant to praise fine-feathered birds, and characters and rings are singing nothing more than thanksgiving for litanies of undeserved grace, unnumbered blessings, the lights increasing, our brightly festooned trees bedazzling. Her Mother's Irises. No ideas but in things I tell her, Dr. Williams tells us in a poem. Say it, this is just to say those plums in the fridge, a red wheelbarrow upon which so much does indeed depend the glaze of rainwater, the white chickens. Present in their bland thinginess a key, a cipher for the mystery of things, and here's something. She walks out to the sea, returning with the wildflowers picked on the anniversary of her her mother's death, now 16 Junes ago, and how her father kept a paper bag full of Dusty tubers saved for his daughter, small consolations. Her mother's irises now grown beyond her care. It is a thing with her, she sows them everywhere. I keep in Ireland, um, among other uh, beloved things, uh, several piebald asses. I got one years ago to serve as a lawnmower for the Haggard which was overgrowing, and I couldn't bear to have a lawnmower out there. I thought it would look too suburban. And uh, so I bought a a jackass, and uh, after a while he began to roar as if something was really missing. So I went and bought another one, and she was uh, the the first one I called Charles because of the ears, and um, (laughs) and the other one I called Camilla because that was the year I got her. Morning among piebalds. This standing stillness among ruminants inclines, inclines towards contemplations, perfectly indifferent to a day's contingencies, news of the world, some word on the weather. And as for speaking to one another, only insofar as communicants extend their tongues agape for Eucharist, we yawn along a day's communion rail, this presence whether virtual or real, we hunger after such companionships. And so my piebald asses lolling move in their haphazard unison as if the hedge and green sword were their common table. The silence hums a sort of reverence for being and creation and the life insouciant still mindlessly alive. Buskers. I think I'll finish with this. No, as Dante said, just two more. <laughs> Buskers. He reckoned she'd likely go for the busker and shop street off air square with a top knot and sax, a wasserel with wayfish world-weary good looks. He'd curl into a grin singing harmony with the darkly fetching lead singer. She liked him too. He imagined her making for the road with them, maybe doing percussions and backup vocals city to city across the globe, the object of their conjoined desires, Wendy to their lost boys. A woman with lovers and cool allure, such mysterious beauty to her being that years after they'd still be whispering of it, her lurid journals eventually published in dozens of languages, all of them gold. And let me finish with a poem that is in a book um, which proves the point that poets lie. <laughs> but I want to say uh, again what gratitude uh, I have to uh, to any of you to come in from a, such a beautiful day to listen to this. It's like going to the shrink and not getting a bill for it. So, uh, so I'll finish with this. It's called Uh, It's called Refusing at 52 to Write Sonnets. It's a real old poem, but I wrote it for a birthday, and then I counted up the lines. It turns out to be 15, which proves that um, the older we get, the less we count. And you can try this at home. (laughs) It came to him that he could nearly count how many Octobers he had left to him in increments of 10 or, say, 11 thus 63, 74, 85. He couldn't see himself at 96, humanity's advances notwithstanding in health care, self-help, or new age regimens. What with his habits and family history? The end, he thought, is nearer than you think. The future thus confined to its contingencies. The present moment opens like a gift. The blueing month, the gray week, the blue morning, the hours routine, the minutes passing glance, all seem like God sends now, and what to make of this? At the end, the word that comes to us is thanks.
0: Thank you for that splendid reading. Tony Hoagland's poems poke and provoke at the same time as they entertain and delight. He is American poetry's hilarious high priest of irony, a wisecracker and risk taker, whose disarming humor, self-scathing and tenderness are all fueled by an aggressive moral intelligence. He pushes the poem not just to its limits, but over the page. Yes, I know that's what it says in the program, but I wrote that description, so I'm stealing it from myself to introduce him. (coughs) Um, He's published five collections in the U.S. His first U.K. book of poems, What Narcissism Means to Me, Selected Poems, was published by Bloodaxe in 2005. That drew on the first three of his American collections and was followed by the wonderfully titled Unincorporated Persons in the Late Honda Dynasty and Application for Release from the Dream. He's also published two books of essays in the U.S., Real Sophistication, spelt with an F, Essays on Poetry and Craft, and 20 Poems That Could Save America and Other Essays. Uh, Reviewing in his work in the New York Times, Dwight Garner wrote that few poets deliver more pure pleasure. Hoagland's erudite comic poems are backloaded with heartache and longing, and they function emotionally like improvised explosive devices. And Edward Hirsch said of him, Tony Hoagland is a provocateur, a brash interventionist, a deeply engaged Whitmanian poet and critic who poses, like the master, as, quote, one of the roughs. So would you please welcome a poet who's probably the most polished of any of the roughs.
2: Thank you very much, Neil. Thank you all for being here. It's a privilege to read with Thomas Lynch. It's Great to watch someone get himself into trouble um, in front of a lot of people. You make me want to take more risks, <clears throat> um, and uh, and also such a gracious man as well. Um, I'm going to start by reading a poem which I wrote. Uh, I'll try to follow up on uh, on Thomas's idea that. Uh, about whether poetry is a monologue or whether it's a, a dialogue or a dialectic. I am on the latter side, by the way. Um, uh, anyway, so there, there are two mistakes that you can make. Uh, one is um, saying something that you quickly regret, and the other is not saying something that you should have said. And this poem, um, it's like looking for an address there are two mistakes you can make, turn back too soon or go past it. Um, this is about a, a, a dinner uh, where um, people were, academics I was at the table with, were condescending to D.H. Lawrence. And, uh, and, and I revere Lawrence, a great poet, incredible insights about gender which are still uh, rarely equaled. And uh, I didn't defend him, so I wrote this poem. About it. Lawrence. On two occasions in the past 12 months, I have failed when someone at a party spoke of him with a dismissive scorn to stand up for D.H. Lawrence, a man who burned like an acetylene torch from one end to the other of his life. These individuals whose relationship to literature is approximately that of a tree shredder to stands of old-growth forest, leaned back in their... These people leaned back in their chairs, bellies full of dry white wine and the ovum of some foreign fish and casually dropped his name the way that pygmies with their little poison spears strut around the carcass of a fallen elephant. Oh, elephant, they say, you are not so big and brave today. It's a bad day when people speak of their superiors with a contempt they haven't earned. And it's a sorry thing when certain other people don't defend the great dead ones who have opened up the world before them. And though in a catalog of my betrayals, this is a fairly minor entry, I resolve if the occasion should recur to uncheck my tongue and say, I love the spectacle of maggots condescending to a corpse. Or, you should be so lucky in your brainy, bloodless life as to, to, as to deserve to lift just one of D.H. Lawrence's urine samples to your arid, psychobiographic, theory-tainted lips. Or maybe I'll just take the shortcut between the spirit and the flesh and punch someone in the face. Because human beings haven't come that far in their effort to subdue the body. And we still walk around like zombies in our dying, burning world, able to do little more than fight and fuck and crow. Something Lawrence wrote about in such a manner as to make us seem magnificent. I'll read this poem called uh, Song for Picking Up. There's, there are a lot of uh, stages of development or rites of passage and. There's a day probably in um, adolescence or maybe early maturity, if it ever arrives, um, in which you realize that everything you've ever dropped, somebody else has had to pick up. Um, and so this is sort of a praise song for all those people who follow behind us and pick everything up. But I, I suppose that on, uh, in terms of ecological correctness, this is, this is my, um, this is my a poem for the ecology, Song for Picking Up. Every time that something falls, someone is consigned to pick it up. Every time it drops and rolls into a crack, blows out the window of a car, or down onto the dirty restaurant floor, a piece of chalk, a paper, paper cup, a cube of cheese from the buffet, and there somebody goes down upon their hands and knees. What age are you when you learn that? After the surgeons are done with the operating room, someone makes it spick and span again. After Dante finished the inferno, someone cleaned up all the ink and crumpled paper. After World War I, the Super Bowl, the battlefield at Troy, after the marching feet of all humanity, Come the brooms and mops, the garbage men and moms, the janitors. They follow behind the rest of us. After that, you understand. No more easy litter, no more paper towels on the public restroom floor. You bend over for even tiny bits of paper, or bitterly, you look back at your life. Like Cain, upon the body of his brother. <clears throat> um, this is a poem about uh, about water, um, and uh, which one would prefer to be, uh, <clears throat> and of course that's what you want, in a way, uh, for poetry to be to be um, undivided and sort of flowing forward and flowing around obstacles. It's not really like that but, uh, so this is kind of a praise of water. Uh, I knew a poet once who was so sensitive, she wept because the ice cube trays um, seemed to her tragic because of the way that the water was, was, uh, was frozen in these separate compartments and it really couldn't communicate with itself. That's a poet. This is called The Social Life of Water. All water is part of other water. Cloud talks to lake. Mist speaks quietly to creek. Lake says something back to cloud, and cloud listens. No water is lonely water. All water is part of other water. River rushes to reunite with ocean. Tree drinks rain and sweats out dew. Dew takes elevator into cloud. Cloud marries puddle. Puddle has long conversation with lake about fjord. Fog sneaks up and murmurs insinuations to swamp. Swamp makes needs known to marshland. Thunderstorm throws itself on estuary. Waterspout laughs at joke of frog pond. All water understands. All water understands. Reservoir gathers information for database of watershed. Brook translates lake to waterfall. Tide wrinkles its green forehead and then breaks through. All water understands, but you, you stand on the shore of Blue Lake Kiev in the evening and listen, grieving as something stirs and turns inside you, not knowing why you linger in the dark, not even able to guess from what you are excluded You realize that poem could have gone on indefinitely. Um, <clears throat> I read this poem; um, it's called Bible Study. So, uh, so Thomas and I were talking about uh, uh, about whether poetry uh, was uh, dialectical or whether it was monological. Of course, um, it's known. The form is called dramatic monologue, as if a person were a unified thing. But my experience really is more of being a kind of madhouse on legs, and uh, the chorus of of, uh, of selves with, within within me, and I assume within most people, is actually a lot more insubordinate than a well mannered poem would indicate. Um, Adam Zagiewski has a, a beautiful sentence in one of his poems where he says, everything was fragments, that much we knew, and it seemed cruel irony to us that we spoke in complete sentences. Um, and Miloj, another Polish poet, says the purpose of poetry is to show how difficult it is to remain just one person. And when he says that, he means that... Um, the poem has to show the contentiousness inside the self and inside the soul. It has to be spitting and kissing back and forth between different parts of the self and almost out of control, but, but, but somehow unified. And so this poem uh, jumps from uh, sort of uh, tone to tone, I think. It's called Bible Study. Who would have imagined that I would have to go a million miles away from the place where I was born to find people who would love me. And that I would go that distance and that I would find those people. In the dream, Joanne was showing me how much arm to amputate if your hand gets trapped in the machine if you acted fast, she said, you could save everything above the wrist. You want to keep a really sharp blade close by, she said. Now I raise that hand to scratch one of those nasty little scabs on the back of my head, and we sit outside and watch the sun go down, inflamed as an appendicitis over western Illinois, which then subsides and cools into a smooth gray wash. Who knows? This might be the last good night of summer. My broken nose is forming an idea of what's for supper. Hard to believe that death is just around the corner. What kind of idiot would even think he had a destiny? I was on the road for so long by myself, I took to reading motel Bibles just for company. Lying on the chintz bedspread before going to sleep, still feeling the motion of the car inside my body. I thought some wrongness in myself had left me that alone. And God said, You are worth more to me than 100 sparrows. And when I read that, I wept. And God said, Whom have I blessed more than I have blessed you? And I looked at the minibar and the bad abstract hotel art on the wall and the dark TV set watching like a deacon. And God said, survive and carry my perfume among the perishing. Um, This poem is... uh, It's sort of based on a moment that I started noticing some years ago when uh, that I would be in conversation with a woman at some kind of gathering, and she would sort of casually find a way to mention her husband. Um, And uh, it it didn't take me long to realize that I was receiving a social cue, uh, um, kind of like the opposite of a pheromone. Um, (laughs) LAUGHTER and so I, I, I thought I would write about that moment. Um, it's called Moment in the Conversation. At the party sometimes, there is a moment in the conversation when the woman you were talking to casually makes some mention of her husband. And you know you probably have been leaning in to an uncomfortable degree. Please adjust your body language to speak Amish. Amish. It isn't like she is suggesting that her husband is on his way over right now after teaching his class at the karate studio <laughs> or that he will be back any moment from walking the pit bull to his court-ordered session at the anger management center. <laughs> it is more like being tastefully detained at the entrance of a restaurant you really can't afford. It is like being gently guided by a security guard in a motorized golf cart out of a neighborhood where you were just strolling and looking around. Life used to be a whole subdivision of crazy possibilities, but now it's just a few quiet rooms on the second floor in the economy motel near the edge of town. Sometimes one of those former impulses of yours calls you from the phone in the lobby and wants you to come out and run around. And you have to speak to it the way that married woman speaks to you, slowly and firmly and with a kind of charity, pronouncing the simple words in such a way that even an idiot can understand. Um, I'll read this poem, which is uh that's that's too peaceful a poem i 'll follow on this romance theme i I went out with a woman once uh who I realized um after we were after I was desperately in love with her, that, um, that she was sort of conducting her own education one man at a time and finding men who were basically a kind of tutorial system. Um, so she would, be, uh, uh, she would be involved with a biologist and she would learn all about mitochondria. She would be with an astronomer and she would be able to identify all the heavenly bodies. And that it was, seemed like a very uh, wise form of uh, continuing education. Um, <clears throat> And I wrote this poem about her much later. It's called The University of Men. First, Susan got engaged to an archaeologist who took her to excavate dinosaur bones in Tibet. At night, in their double sleeping bag, while he cataloged her body parts, Suze discovered her inner Tibetan. Then she realized that he was a dinosaur, and she found herself a western river guide who taught her to work the long wooden paddles on the rubber river raft in the turbulent deep green Colorado, while condors from California screamed overhead in the high airy of the sky, as Whitman said, whose work she became something of an expert in when she dated the literature professor from Wisconsin. He was followed by the mathematician who taught her the secrets of division until she divided herself from him and went after the strong but sensitive fireman who could not put out her fire. It seemed that she was enrolled in the University of Men and that she would remain a student forever, leaving one stunned dude after another floating cross-eyed in the current behind her. Now Susan has started the International University of Women, a school which only women are invited to attend, all of the instructors having done extensive field work in the University of Men, whom they fondly refer to in the faculty room in the long summer afternoons after class as the boys. (laughs) Um, This is a poem about... It seems it would seem quite uh, healthy for, uh, for the psyche uh, and for, probably for our general civility if we all received a, a death sentence uh, every couple of years, um, which was then sort of rescinded uh, by a telephone call from the governor or something like that. So this is sort of, the speaker in this poem is kind of thinking about what he would do if he, if he knew that he were going to be dead a year from now. <clears throat> it's called Distant Regard. If I knew I would be dead by this time next year, I believe I would spend the months from now till then writing thank-you notes to strangers and acquaintances, telling them, you really were a great travel agent, or I never got the taste of your kisses out of my mouth, or Watching you walk across the room was part of my destination. It would be the equivalent, I think, of leaving a chocolate wrapped in shiny foil on the pillow of a guest in the hotel. Hotel of Earth, where we resided for some years together, I start to say before I realize it is a terrible cliche, and stop and then go on forgiving myself in a mere split second, because now that I'm dying, I just go forward like water, flowing around obstacles and second thoughts and getting snag- not getting snagged, just continuing with my long list of thank yous, which seems to naturally expand to include sunlight and wind, and the aspen trees which gleam and shimmer in the yard and the intricate irrigation system which floods their roots, invented by an individual whose name I will never know, but to whom I am quietly grateful. Outside, it is autumn, season when cold air sharpens the mind. The hills are red and copper in their shaggy majesty. The clouds blow overhead like governments and years. Time to contemplate, the distant things, to learn from their example of calm, time to practice affection without a desperate hanging on. It took me a long time to understand the phrase distant regard, but I believe that I get it now, and I'm grateful for my heart that turned out to be good after all, and grateful for my mind to which, in retrospect, I can see I have never been sufficiently kind. Um, and I'll close with some poem or the other. I'll close with this poem. <clears throat> um, it's about animals and wildlife, and uh, it's sort of set in one of the small towns in the West, Western USA, where I live, and uh, I walked around the town and I saw signs uh, advising uh, residents not to put their garbage out the night before it gets picked up um, for a reason that the poem explains. The poem's called Wild. In late August, when the streams dry up and the high meadows turn parched and blonde. Bears are squeezed out of the mountains, down into the valley of condos and housing developments. All residents are therefore prohibited from putting their garbage out early. The penalty for disobedience will be bears. Large black furry fellows drinking from your sprinkler system, rolling your trash cans down your lawn, bashing through the screen door of the back porch to get their first real taste of a spaghetti dinner, while the family hides in the garage and the wife dials 1-800-BEARS on her cell phone, a number she just made up in a burst of creative hysteria. Isn't that the way it goes? Wildness enters your life and asks that you invent a way to meet it, and you run in the opposite direction as the bears saunter down Main Street, sending station wagons crashing into fire hydrants, getting the police department to phone for tranquilizer guns, the dart going by accident into the neck of the unpopular police chief who is carried into early retirement in an ambulance crowned with flashing red lights, as the bears inherit the earth, full of water and humans and garbage, which still looks to them like paradise. Thank you. Thank you.